Welcome to Biblical Literacy 101. This is a weekly in-person class taught at Columbus Baptist Church. This course is a verse-by-verse deep dive into the scriptures. We encourage you to listen to these recordings and follow along with your Bible open. With that being said, let's get into this week's class. and to those who are listening to the podcast online. Um, Before we get into our chapters of Psalms, which are chapters 10 and 11 for tonight, I'd like to open us up in prayer. God, thank you for this opportunity that we have to study your word a little bit deeper and um, get some more knowledge out of this. Let, uh, Let the teaching tonight be satisfactory. Let us all get something out of it. And just uh, thank you for this time that we get to be together. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, For the structure of tonight's class, there will be a section in the middle after chapter 10 where we can ask questions just about that specific chapter, and then there'll be time at the end as well. So if you have any questions about what I'm going to be covering, I'd suggest jotting it down so that you don't forget, but just so you know, there'll be two Q&A times in the middle of this. All right, so like I said, tonight we're going to be going over Psalms chapters 10 and 11, Um, But before we do that, I thought it would be beneficial to start with an overview of the Psalms in general. Um, This is something that I personally needed to do in my uh, own personal study time, and I hope that it helps you too. Um, If you noticed, at the very beginning of our Bible study, whoop, my clicker broke. (laughs) Get that. At the very beginning of our study of the book of Psalms uh, that Justin taught, Uh, In the very first chapter, there's a header at the very, very top that says book one. Um, And I've ignored that in the past when reading the (laughs) Psalms because it didn't seem very pertinent. Um, But if you look through the entire book of Psalms, you will see it is not only divided by chapters and verses, but it's also divided by these book headers, okay? So it's actually broken up into five larger sections. We have book one, book two, book three, book four, and book five. Um, this is because these larger sections all end with basically the same phrase. And I'm going to show you what uh, verses they actually end on. So book one ends on chapter 41, verse 13. Book two ends on chapter 72. Book three ends on chapter 89. And book four ends on chapter 106. And of course, book five finishes it out at 150. Um, So all these last chapters and last verses of these book sections, book one through four, say the same thing. And that's one of the reasons why they're broken up in this way. And um, they all say the same phrase in different ways, but it kind of boils down to just my best guess of a way to summarize all of them is it's basically saying, uh, may the Lord God of Israel be blessed forever. Amen. Um, So they all kind of end with that same thought process. Okay. So another reason why the Psalms are broken up into these five books is because they actually kind of explore different time frames. So if we look at it like this, Books one and two explore the story of David and his royal family. Book three focuses on the tragedy of Israel's exile and the downfall of David's royal line. Um, And then books four and five kind of rekindle the hope for the Messiah, a new temple, and God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. Um, You'll notice on my little chart up here, I pulled over Psalms one and two to the side, uh, aside from book one. 
Uh, that's because most of the poems in book one, that's chapters one through 41, most of them uh, are linked to David. Uh, but Psalms one and two actually are not. So I have them pulled off to the side and I'll explain. So Psalms one and two actually lay out the main themes of the whole book, the, uh, the whole book of Psalms by reviewing the biblical storyline. Justin went through this in our first week. Um, Psalms one actually looks back at the Garden of Eden. Uh, God's creation of humankind, their placement in the garden. Here humans decide to define good and evil and become exiled from the garden. Uh, if we remember from our first week, Psalms 1 specifically focuses on this upright human who delights in God's wisdom, this person that eternally blossoms because they are planted firmly near God. Um, and then when we jump into Psalms 2, which is the other one, uh, which fo this focuses on God's promise that a king would come from the line of David. If you want to read more about that, that's in 2 Samuel 7, and he is called the Son of Man, uh, the Son of God, and the Messiah. And it is the Son of God who will come to restore the kingdom of God. So we have those first two psalms are basically lining everything up for the rest of the psalms. Um, these themes that it's presenting, and the themes would be that being meditating on God's word, the coming Messiah, the kingdom of God, and the temple are all across these five books. Um, and I, I wrote a note here for myself. I said I would love to spend time talking about the Babylonian exile in the temple, which is kind of focused in that book three, chapters 73 through 89. Um, but it would just, uh, it's going to come up in later discussion. We're going to get there eventually. So um, yeah, so what's the point of mentioning all this? Why, why, do I, why did I feel it necessary to like give us a little overview of everything? Um, while this is not essential to understanding the Psalms, it is helpful. Um, we are currently in David land, right? Uh, book one, as Matt mentioned last week, it might be valuable for us as we're going through this to go back to the chapters of um, First and Second Samuel to kind of get ourselves familiar with the story of David again, um, because a lot of this is focusing on him. Um, but we're in book one. We're in book one of Psalms, and these prayers, laments, and these songs of praise are meant to be our own. Um, we're to learn from them. So it might be valuable to go back and kind of learn about who David is since he's speaking to us. Um, and that's interesting because right now David's kind of like our prayer coach in these first couple of chapters from 1 to 41 and then 42 to 72, which feels like a long way away right now since we're in 10 and 11. But it's, um, it's good to re-familiarize ourselves with that. Um, and you've probably heard this many, many, many times before, but I'm going to say it again. Um, there's a verse in 2 Timothy 3, 16 through 17 that says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And I say that because the book of Psalms is good for that, Right? But the book of Psalms bounces between poems of praise and lament, and it's designed to be studied over and over and over again. This is something that can sustain you for a lifetime, basically, this whole 150 chapters. Um, so I'd like us to keep that in mind as we're going through the Psalms, where it's coming from and where we're at currently, which is why I wanted this overview. Because you can truly hop around to any old chapter in Psalms and get something out of it. Um, I'll give an example. The other day I was in... Uh, Psalms 59, and the very first verse of that chapter read, Deliver me from my enemies, O my God. Protect me from those who rise up against me. And that can apply to my life literally right now, right? Um, 
But as I looked a little bit deeper, I can see that chapter 59 was written by David um, from David's perspective when Saul sent men to watch his house in order to actually kill him. Um, So now suddenly this is way more of an urgent prayer than just like, oh, I'm in times of distress, God, you know, help me from people that are hurting. It's like, um, deliver me from my enemies, oh God. They're literally at my doorstep. Um, So I, I, I say all this because context, you know? Context and pouring yourself into studying God's word as accurately as you can will strengthen you. It will. And it will help you grasp the scriptures more effectively. I mean, that's why we're all here. I'm listening to this and uh, soaking it all in. So I just wanted to give that overview of Psalms before we go into chapters 10 and 11 tonight, Um, especially after we just covered chapter 8, which really focuses on that idea that God likes to use us even though he doesn't really need to. Um, And he chooses the weak, the poor, and the afflicted to do so. So that brings us to Psalms chapter 10, um, which I would like to kind of summarize what we're going to be reading before we even read it. Um, Psalms chapter 10 basically kind of says, why do you let the wicked get away with it as a whole? That's kind of the whole uh, focus of it. This idea of, yes, God chooses to use the weak, the poor, and the afflicted, but Why are the wicked allowed to prosper off of our suffering? So it it is a psalm of lament at the prosperity of the wicked, but it focuses ultimately on the confidence in the judgments of God. Um, Now, normally, I love to read through the whole thing all all at once and then kind of go back, but Psalm 10 is 18 verses, so I think I'm just going to start from the beginning and we'll make our way down that way. So, since we are studying from the ESV Bible translation, before we even get into the chapter, we are greeted by a title. We have a title that says, Why Do You Hide Yourself? Right at the top. It is interesting to note that some other translations do not have a title for chapter 10. Those translations would be NIV, which is very popular, the King James Version, which is very popular, and the New Living Translation, which is pretty popular. Um, Some theologians uh, believe that chapter 10 should have actually been included with chapter 9, which is why there's no header um, in those other translations. But I personally believe that the break here makes a lot of sense. And so do most Bible translators. So I think that's fair. Um, I personally believe that the one large reason is due to the Selah that ends chapter 9. Um, which again, it has been agreed that the word selah means a musical break or a pause uh, or the lifting of hands. So the question is, why is there a title in this translation, the ESV, which we're studying from, and not in the others? I would suggest uh, reading a paper by James Fraser called The Authenticity of Psalm Titles. Uh, It is available online. You can literally Google it. It's a PDF. It's about 200 pages. Really, really fascinating read um, about this entire subject of, like, is it even legitimate? Why are these titles here? Is it in the original, like, text that was written? Um, But basically, there has been some debate on whether or not these titles were included by the original writers of the Psalms, or if someone who put the Psalms together, and this would be somebody still within the time of Ezra, um, added these titles later on. 
So I would suggest reading that paper, which is basically a book. <laughs> um, but the ultimate, uh, the ultimate conclusion is, of this book is that the evidence that is presented in it shows that the psalm titles are authentic. Um, uh, these titles may be interpreted differently between translations, uh, but they, the guy who wrote it, James Fraser, basically ends the book by saying, if we leave them out, it's a great disservice. And I completely agree with it. After reading through it and kind of studying it myself, it makes a lot of sense. You know, it's, it's just helpful. <laughs> Um, and it was originally included in there. Again, go, go read through it. A lot of really fascinating things about it. Um, so yeah, so in the ESV, we have, we have the title, Why Do You Hide Yourself? Uh, the NASB translation, which is also a great translation, shows the title as A Prayer for the Overthrow of the Wicked, which I really like. And then the RSV, if you've never heard of the RSV, it's what the ESV was based off of. Um, it was an earlier version of it. The RSV translation shows uh, the title as When Judgment is Delayed, which I think is my favorite one. That one's really cool. Um, but they're all cool titles about where we are about to read, uh, talking about the wicked getting away with being wicked. Um, so let's just dive into the text and start with verse 1. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 4 uh, uh, right now. So we have, why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised. For the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul. And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him. All his thoughts are there is no God. Dang. <laughs> All his thoughts are there is no God. Uh, the NIV actually translate that, translates that last phrase as, in all his thoughts, there is no room for God. Scary. Um, it is not stated in this psalm explicitly, but it is often assumed that David actually wrote this one uh, because it is actually arranged in the midst, as I showed you with that overview, in several psalms that are specifically attributed to him. So Psalms 3 through 9 are for him and 11 through 32. So 10 is right in the middle of that. Um, so I'm personally going to be referring to David as the writer of this for the remainder of it. Um, so verse 1. Let's go back to verse 1. Uh, why, O oh Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? This is something we've probably all asked at some point in our lives. Um, and you know what? It's almost fair to venture that literally everybody in the world has asked out loud some form of these questions. You know, this fear of what seems to us as the inactivity of God. Why did you leave me? You know, like... You know, even those who don't necessarily believe in God have probably said something like this. Um, why are you so far away? Why have you forgotten about me? Those kind of things. Um, and if you see the second half of verse 1, we see a phrase that we saw last week in Psalms 9.9, times of trouble. So, <clears throat> Psalms 9.9 said, the Lord is a stronghold for the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. This is the same times of trouble, exact same one. Um, it's the same word in Hebrew, which is, bear with me, the Hebrew word is basara. Um, this was a very rare word in the ancient human, uh, he, not human, Hebrew, <laughs> human, yes, vocabulary. It's used only here in Psalms 9-9, the only two times in the entire Bible that it is shown, this basara. Um, its meaning is destitution, uh, dearth, or a cutting off of hope of deliverance, which is the scariest one to me. Um, dearth, 
Not a word I use very often, or actually have heard of before this, so I needed to look up the definition. Uh, it is a scarcity or lack of something. So that lack of something, I think, is what is being used here. Um, interesting side note, batsara, the Hebrew word, um, has another form that's just tsara, which is used very commonly um, in scripture, and that just means distress, just distress. So this is like, this is the next level of that. This is very, this is times of trouble. This is destitution. This is cutting off of a hope of deliverance. So it's very interesting to see the contrast here. We have Psalms 9.9 is focusing on the strength of God in times of trouble, whereas chapter 10, verse 1 is showing the fear of God potentially not being there. Um, But isn't that the truth sometimes? Most times we are not fearful of the trouble we are in, but rather this idea that we construct that God has abandoned us, you know? That's a little scarier. So I think David is feeling those same emotions here, and as we move into verse two, we can see why. I'm gonna reread uh, verses two through four again here. Uh, In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let me switch the slide so you can read with me. That makes sense. In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes that they have devised, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, And the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord in the pride of his face. The wicked does not see him. All his thoughts are there is no God. I just love reading that part because it's so crazy. Um, So yeah, David is uh, seeing the wicked uh, persecute the poor and affirm other sinners through their actions. That's no fun. (laughs) Uh, But also the wicked are sinning against God, which is also David is noticing. Uh, so much so that God is literally in none of their thoughts. So reading these uh, parts two to four, I kind of came up with two ways we can be looking at this. Um, Number one would be David is kind of putting two people in the same category and saying they're equally offensive. So those who are mindfully rejecting God and those who are literally never thinking of him. Or we could be interpreting this as These wicked people are so vile that they have literally filled their minds and hearts so full of wickedness that there's no space left for God to be. And I think both work, honestly, Um, which is why I put both up here because I think you can interpret it both ways. And it's still, I think at the same time, like they both can be true. Um, So let's move on. Let's move on to verses five through seven. His ways prosper at all times, his ways being the wicked, Um, I like to reiterate that just because (laughs) when you're referencing God, sometimes there'll be a he and that's it. So his, we're talking about the wicked here. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high out of his sight. As for all his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved. Throughout all generations, I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. Uh, interesting little tidbit here. Uh, both mischief and iniquity in the Hebrew translate to trouble. <laughs> so that last verse, uh, when it says, under his tongue are mischief and iniquity, it's quite literally send, saying, under his tongue is trouble and trouble, um, which is fun. So, so uh, five through seven, what's actually being said here? Uh, well, again, David is reiterating, these wicked people are always prospering and they are filled with pride from it. Uh, They are enjoying it a lot, it seems, based on this. Uh, Hence this, uh, he puffs at them. The word puffs is a fun word. Uh, That's why I singled it out. In the Hebrew, this puffs, 
is puach. And I hope I'm saying that right, because that feels right. <laughs> um, but puach means to breathe. Uh, we see this exact same word used in Proverbs 14.5, where it says, a faithful witness does not lie, but a false witness breathes out lies. That breathing is the same word as that puffs that we see here. So we've got the prideful, wicked sinner that is delighting in this sin. And we have David expressing how it seems that God's judgment is really far from them, far above out of the sight. So that's where we're currently at. So let's keep moving on through this. We're going to read uh, verses 8 through 11. He, again, the wicked, he sits in ambush in the villages, in hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor. He seizes the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down, and fall by his might. He says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So now we're literally just seeing more descriptions of the wicked man. We're getting a lot of descriptions of this wicked man or these wicked people. Uh, he's really putting it out there. Um, not only are they prideful, but they're literally waving it around in the faces of the poor, but they're also being secretive. So it's a little, it's an interesting contrast here um, that the wicked man is celebrating in this idea that God is not even seeing them. It's like, ooh, I'm hiding, but I'm hiding because I'm a little afraid, but I'm not really, haha. It's, it's, it's weird. The, that, that last thing where he's like, he will never see um, he will never see what I'm doing, so it's, it's all good, which it clearly is not. Um, so let's, let's move on. Now we will see, as we get into this next part, the good part, we will see David's call to action for all those who are ungodly and live out their days in this way. So we're going to read uh, 12 through 15 here. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? But you do see, for you note mischief and vexation, that you may take it in your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been the helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. So now we got David's call to action in verse 12. God, these wicked-hearted people are getting really comfy. <laughs> Uh, because they think that you won't do anything against them. That's kind of what's being saying here. Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand. Forget not the afflicted. And then in verse 13, I thought this was interesting. Um, we have David asking a question that he answers right away, basically. Um, we have, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to action? Well, that's, that's the answer. That's the answer right there is, because they've already decided that there's no consequences. There's no account. So it's kind of almost rhetorical, the way that he's responding here. But now, let's switch gears a bit to uh, chapter, not chapter, verse 14. Um, now we have, but I know you see the wicked because you've seen the trouble before and you're seeing it now. That, that's what verse 14 is kind of saying. The word in the ESV here is vexation. Vexation, also another word I don't really use on a regular basis. Um, but it means the state of being annoyed, frustrated, or worried. And I'd focus primarily 
on that last definition of it, that worry. So, you know, 12 through 15, this whole thing, we've got, God, you see the problems, and I know you will provide righteous judgment, basically. That's kind of how we're summing it up. This is still a lament, this psalm. Um, But now we're really focusing on the outcome. Now the part that probably everybody was like, ooh, two. Break the arm (laughs) of the wicked and evildoer. Yikes. So here's the fun part about this. I was really excited to dive into this little section and find like, oh, it really means this. Or, oh, this word actually means this. It's not actually the arm. It's as literally as clear as that. It literally says, break the wicked's arm and make sure that it is broken until there's not an ounce of wickedness left. That is what that phrase means. So it, it, it is, David is being as clear as possible here. Um, and the translation in the ESV is very accurate to what actually was written. So let's, let's see what the conclusion to all this is, right? We've got three verses left in chapter 10. Make sure it's on the screen, yes. So 16 says, the Lord is king forever and ever. The nations perish from his land. O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. So now we've got a confidence that we didn't see at the beginning. There's a lot of fear like, God, why are you leaving the afflicted and stuff? And now we've got this this confidence. Um, David is exalting God as the eternal king. Uh, The nations perished from his land, going back, he's kind of calling back to past victories, I believe, probably in reference to the Canaanites when they were in God's land. Um, In the end, he's got confidence that God will do it again uh, based on that. And then verse 17, O Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted, you will strengthen their heart and you will incline your ear. Uh, God will not abandon those in time of need, which it seems to be that's where David is right now. Uh, God will incline his ear, he will listen, and then we end on verse 18, which is very interesting. To do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. This is an assurance that God's justice will be instilled and there will be victory over the wicked. Uh, Very quickly, I thought this was interesting. Verse 16 and verse 18, these words that end with land and earth are the exact same Hebrew word. Um, The word is eretz. Eretz means land. So it's kind of like how we use them interchangeably in that same way. So you really could say the nations will perish from his earth so that the man who is of the earth may not strike again, Um, which is interesting. A quick thought about just chapter 10 as a whole before I go to questions, if anyone might have some about this. Um, It's been speculated by some that David wrote this psalm during the time that King Saul was trying to kill him. Uh, So all this language of despair would probably be over Saul, this wickedness, Um, which makes a very interesting contrast with the ending here, uh, how David is saying that God is the only king forever. It's kind of digging at Saul in a way because he was king. It's like, well, you're not really the king. Um, But also David was a warrior and used violence a lot, which seems strange that he's kind of holding back here, right? Why wouldn't he just take things into his own hands? Um, But it actually makes a lot of sense here if 
he's standing back if it is about Saul. Uh, David was asking God to put a stop to Saul because David knew that it was not his place to lift his hand against the Lord's anointed. But honestly, I just say that as like an overview. We can really apply the psalm to the wickedness of our world and just how (laughs) oppressive it is and how uh, easy it can be to get uh, caught up in that. So that, that is Psalms 10 in a nutshell. Before we move on to Psalms chapter 11, were there any questions about the overview of Psalms or uh, chapter 10 in general? Yes, Matt. I have a question on the, on the headings. Yes. I noticed that the NIV doesn't have any titles at all. Are the titles actually there in the original manuscripts, or are those... I'm assuming that's what you're talking about, right? Yes. I always thought they were just something that, like, the ESV editors So that's the fun part. Um, Again, I highly suggest reading the paper, but yes, it is in the manuscripts. Based on the Dead Sea Scrolls, if you guys have heard of that, that is where they found a lot of them. Um, Like I said, in the time of Ezra is the latest that they saw some of these being added, but the Psalms were actually put together and compiled by uh, poets and stuff like that. So they would pull these Psalms. What we have, the 150 now, is just, you know, the original writers and someone pulling them together to be laid out the way that they are. So some were added by those. But I like to suggest the idea that they're here for a reason, right? They've, we've gotten to this place in these translations. They are existing, and I believe that that to be true. Um, but yes, it is in the original manuscripts for a lot of them. Um, 10, the reason I even brought it up for 10 is because that's one of the ones that's debated on when was it added, how long ago. That's why in some translations, just chapter 10 is missing. Um, but like Matt's saying with the NAV, most of them are missing because they say, nah. But again, totally read up on that because it's super, super interesting. But that, that's what I found when I was looking through it. Yes? This is fantastic. <laughs> I would never have the question about these titles and songs. I really appreciate this, and you're doing a great job. Um, one thought about the translation of the word erics, or erics. Yes. Um, notice that, you know, as you you have said, the the context around the word largely clues us into whether to translate it land or earth. Um, Sometimes he's speaking of edits in terms of a whole world. Then earth makes a sensible translation, doesn't it? Yes. And uh, why do they use... Why do they translate it as land sometimes? Because that was the common term for the promise to Abraham that his descendants would take would multiply and take possession of a specific land. And so um, that's one reason I think, and one little guidepost to why they translate it this way sometimes and that way sometimes. And that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Thank you for that. Um, we, we see that a lot with, within the translations because the Hebrews, it seemed the Hebrew language used a lot of the same word for one thing where we, if you notice the English language is very complex. I would never want to have to relearn English. Um, we have so many words for so many things when we don't really need to. So it's tough to decide, like, like you're saying, which one does, needs to be here. So that's very good insight into that. Were there any other questions about? Yes. Can you explain verse 13 again? 
verse 13. Yes. So verse 13, why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account? So basically it's saying the wicked are rejecting God, right? They're saying, ah, uh-uh, we don't care about God. Um, why are, but he's asking a question. Why are they saying in their, their heart that you're not going to call me back on it? Like you're not going to catch me for this stuff. Um, I, I believe that this is a rhetorical question in a way. He already knows the answer to it because he's answering it within the context. So 13 is saying, why does the wicked reject God? Because they're literally saying, God's not going to catch me on it. God's not going to um, call to action for my sins and what I'm doing right now. But he's saying it in the form of a question. So it's kind of like, that's the answer, but it's, it's almost like he's, we don't want to need to interpret that as him asking us, how do we figure that out, you know? Yes? In the overview, Yes. Books four and five, could you just repeat what? Yes. Yeah, so that, I'm really excited when we get into that because this is like, we'll see the very first one is actually Moses wrote that one. That's one of those ones. Um, It's a lot of the rejoicing of the Messiah coming. So books four and five is rekindling the hope for the Messiah, uh, the building of the new temple. Again, I said I really wanted to talk about the Babylonian exile because it's so fascinating um, about them losing the temple and how big of a deal that was. And then um, it's God's kingdom on the other side of the exile. So that's, that's what books four and five are. And uh, forget exactly where book four starts, but it's, you know, all of those ones in the 100s <laughs> uh, are within that. Thank you. Yes. Yes. Okay, so verse 15. Um, you said it really means like break the arm. Yes. You said, uh, like, break the arm till, like, there's no wicked left in it? Is that what you said? Yes. So I am, I, am in, I am interpreting this as break the wicked's arm and make sure that it's broken until there's literally not an ounce of wickedness left, which 15, again, says, break the arm of the wicked and evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. So to me, I'm interpreting it as literally no wickedness left. Break him until he's completely broken and there's nothing there. Um, Yeah, does that answer it? Okay, very good. All right, for the sake of time, if you have any more questions, we'll do it again at the end. Um, Luckily, chapter 11 is real short, guys. (laughs) Um, And interestingly enough, uh, chapter 11 kind of has the same theme as chapter 10. Uh, And I'll get into that in a little bit. So Psalm 11 was written by David. We know that, which is good. Um, and we have a title. The Lord is in his holy temple, and we have this subtitle. To the choir master of David, as Matt mentioned last week with uh, chapters 8 and 11, uh, this choir master could be a literal choir director, or it could even mean God himself, which is very interesting. Um, and since this guy is so short, I am going to read through the entirety of chapter 11 so that we have the full context before we dive in going verse by verse. So let's do that now. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. 
The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. So, as a whole, this psalm is about some well-intentioned advice of David's peers to flee when he was a fugitive from King Saul. So, kind of how I was summarizing of chapter 10, where he's literally fleeing from King Saul trying to kill him. Same thing here. Um, But it is also really about David's steadfastness and commitment to be safe within God's protection, um, which is very applicable to us. So let's go back to verse 1. The very, very first thing that David says right here, in the Lord I take refuge. God, I trust you. It's the first thing he's saying, which is a great place to start for anybody. (laughs) Um, Above all else, I trust you. Uh, Next, we have what I think, personally, could have been David's own thoughts, but most say it is actual advice that David received from others. I couldn't find anything about that, but that's what people are perceiving it as. Um, I like the idea that it could also be something that he might be struggling with internally, just himself. Um, But let me reread verses uh, two to three. Well, actually, it would be be the half of uh, one to two to three. So how can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain, For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Saul's men and Saul were after David at this point. Saul was jealous of David, and David was threatening his throne and his place of power. So David was at the head of Saul's army, and he was a great warrior. But now he's getting advice. (laughs) Hey, man, get out of here. Like, they're literally going to kill you. Uh, you need to go. So David knew that this was wrong at the time to do that. That's why we're, this is even having a uh, dialogue. Um, Spurgeon actually said that fleeing could have been seen as a sign of breaching duty to the king, which is interesting. But I think the bigger picture here, um, and sorry, I just said Spurgeon for those who don't know. Charles Spurgeon was a theologian. If you want to look up some of his stuff, very interesting, reads. Um, But David knew that he was innocent. That's the bigger picture. That's the more important thing. These guys are saying, get out of here, flee. And he's like, whoa, I did nothing wrong, right? And he knows that. He's secure in that. But he also knew that God would protect him. That's the bigger picture here. Not the the advice from whoever's saying these things or if it's an internal monologue with himself. It's the fact that he was innocent and he knew that God would be by his side. Okay? So let me reread verse 4 here. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. So this is basically saying, God is still here, so, so am I. Uh, I don't need to run away if God is here with me. And then at the end of that verse, God sees David. And because of that, David knew he had a greater cause than just self-preservation at that moment, right? God is seeing David. God was taking care of him. Also, weird word choice here, eyelids. Uh, That jumped out to me. Typically, when I think of eyelids, I think of closing or not seeing, okay? Uh, But in this, it is being used as a way to say narrowly focusing in, like how we sometimes close our eyelids to exclude every other object when we're looking at something really small, right? We want to make sure that it's, like, focused in right away. 
And interestingly enough, we will not see the use of this word eyelids again until Psalm 132, which is using it in the other way, right? Where it's like slumber to my eyelids, closing them completely. So it's interesting that this is the same Hebrew word uh, here. I'm going to, as long as everyone's got their notes written, go to the next slide. Um, let's reread uh, five again. Again, we're, gonna, we're flying through this, guys. This is great. Um, the Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Again, David is kind of answering that question from verse three, which was, if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The righteous know that God is testing them but they also know that God is in control. So God is not just some detached overseer of the situation, but he detests the violent and the wicked. So God knows, he can see it. Uh, he's not gonna leave anybody there, it's, is what David's saying, he's not gonna leave me here. That's what he's saying with verse five. Verse six, let him rain coals on, this is, this is what I'm excited about. Um, let him rain coals on the wicked Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. Pretty obvious what that is talking about. Uh, God will punish the wicked is what this is saying. Fire and sulfur sounds a lot like eternal judgment to me. Just putting that out there. Uh, and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This, this got to me a little bit when reading that because that was, that was our cup to drink. That was all of our cup to drink. Um, but Jesus drank that for us. Why do I say that? If we go to Matthew chapter 26, verse 39. And going a little farther, he fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it, is, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. This was, you know, this, this idea, this container, this cup, this is the thing that Jesus was dreading because it was God's wrath on sin which is a heavy concept to just throw here in a psalm, like just sprinkled in for fun. Um, so I don't think it's sprinkled in for fun. It's, it's meant to be heavy there, you know? Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup, you know? And I just want to reiterate, that was also us. That was our cup to drink. And he took that. So big stuff here from David. Um, let's bring it home, guys. Verse 7. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Yes, the Lord is righteous. Uh, David was comforted by this. That's why it's even stated here at all. Um, but you know, when you're not doing the right thing, this is not a comforting thought, <laughs> that God is righteous. Um, but again, I want to reiterate, David knew that he was innocent, right? He knew that he had done nothing wrong. Uh, he knew that God would provide in this situation. I want to point out this next line. He loves righteous deeds. Righteous deeds. David isn't earning God's love here. That's not what this is saying. Uh, he is just trying to follow in the footsteps of God's righteousness. Righteous deeds are our way of stepping with God and pursuing his love. Um, if the fruit of your labor is not pleasing to God, what are you doing it for? You know? Um, and then the last line here, the upright shall behold his face. The ability 
to be in God's presence and wanting to be near him is what's driving David right now. Um, wanting to please God and to be within his favor. And I know this has all been all me focusing on David because he's the one's writing it from that perspective, and that's good. But it, I don't even know if I need to say it. It really greatly applies to us. Um, we may face challenges, troubles, or even downright evil things in our lives, but if we choose to stay strong in our faith, focused on his righteousness and control, we can find comfort in that, just like David is finding comfort in this here because the Lord is righteous. Um, and I think that's the significance of chapter 11 as a whole. It's all these scary things, all these wicked judgment, judgment from God that will condemn the wicked, but ultimately, knowing that he's cleansed, <laughs> we are now innocent in his eyes, you know? So that is Psalms, chapters 10 and 11. Are there any questions about anything from tonight? Jade. You can go ahead. Okay. Um, cup, okay? Cup. 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 Go ahead. You see so much in scripture about like the cup of God's wrath and Jesus saying, like, let this cup pass from me and stuff like that. Why is God's wrath always referred to as a cup? Like even like you know in the Old Testament, it's like these nations will drink the cup of wrath. If you want my personal thought on it, just based on how I studied it, um, this, the literal translation of cup is just container from the Hebrew, um, and the idea of that being contained to his place is very interesting to me, God's wrath, because you think that that can just kind of go anywhere and be awry, but to me that shows control, that shows that God is putting this in a very specific place, something that we can kind of catch on to, right, that it's in a cup, something even small to us but something so small that contains something so big is terrifying, right? So that's, that's how I look at it, is like it's, a, it's contained. He's not just going to throw his wrath out willy-nilly, right? It's, gonna, it, it's for a purpose and for a time, so much so that even Jesus was dreading it, right, at a certain point. Wow, I've never heard it explained like that. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, right? Yes. Could you go over verse 5? Verse 5. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So this is particularly interesting to me because if I know anything about David, he kind of was violent. <laughs> um, he was a great warrior. He killed Goliath, cut off his head, lots of things. Very violent man. But he did it in the face of righteousness. So it's a weird flip-flop. People get caught up in that. Um, but to answer your question about what Five is kind of saying... Um, Testing the righteous, it's kind of like, check yourself, right? Um, and then, but his soul, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. So God is saying that he is testing, he is testing those who are the poor and afflicted. Like kind of what we were talking about in chapter 10, about how he uses the poor, the needy, and the afflicted. Um, and he is allowing it, allowing, it seems, the wicked to prosper off of these people that are suffering. This is what that testing is probably referring to, is that same concept of, you know, God will not make your life perfect and make it be going through, like, no problems at all. Um, he is testing those who are trying to reach his righteousness, trying to mimic his righteousness. Um, but he's, the contrast to that is the second half of five, where it's saying, 
but his soul hates the wicked. Don't you be mistaken. It's like you, this, this suffering is happening. These things will happen to you. But that doesn't mean he's forsaking you and just leaving you there in the dust. So that, that's kind of what five is getting at. Um, we see that word test used a lot in different ways in scripture. And here I believe it's being used as a way to say like, you know, God is going to put us through some trials, you know. Any other questions? Yes, Matt. Yes. Why would God not hate David? What is the difference between <laughs> David and his other violent people? Well, I have a seventh page written just for this. <laughs> no. um, honestly, Matt, my best answer to that question is I'm still figuring that out myself. That was the one big question, and I think that you and I can have that conversation probably a lot more often too. We're gonna, as we're going through these Psalms about David, we're gonna learn a lot about that. Um, my first thought is because he was anointed. You know, he was, he was chosen for a position to do a thing. And it, it makes you think about like all those times that wars happened and people were killed and wiped out. It's like, why did any of that happen? Why wouldn't God hate those things happening? Why is that part of the plan? It's very confusing. So I don't have a perfect answer for that. I wish I did. Um, but I think we can continue that conversation later, too. Can I offer something just brief on that? Sure. David didn't seek it out. That's David what I was going to say. Like, he didn't necessarily love the violence, right? right. True. Versus right. saying that, he, that God, uh, what does it say, his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Like, yes. maybe David didn't necessarily love the violence. That's fair. David was willing to do it, but he, he did it when God called him to do it. Yeah. He was obedient to the call, and he didn't shy away from something so vicious. Whereas the wicked who loves violence, that they want the violence. Yeah, yeah. Because oh. sorry, if he loved the violence or wanted the violence, he would have just killed Saul. You know. And that's a, that's a really big part of David's journey. And I I was actually mentioning this to Matt. We had a phone call <laughs> earlier this week. Um, this concept of at the beginning of David's journey. He is hiding in the wilderness from Saul as an innocent person. And then at the end, again, he's hiding in the wilderness from his enemies, but he's not innocent, right? When he was hiding, when he was innocent in the wilderness, he had many opportunities to kill Saul. He really did. He could have, but he avoided it because, like I mentioned in uh, chapter 10, he knew that he couldn't put his hand on the anointed one of God. It wasn't his responsibility to instill that violence, even though he could. He really could have. There's a point in there where King Saul actually comes at David with a spear and he just dodges it rather than rebuttaling and fighting him, which is a very interesting part of, uh, I believe it's in 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, I can't remember. It's in one of the Samuels. Um, but yes, he's, he's not loving violence. That's good answers by both of you. Um, I think that's probably the best answer that I have for that is their answer. But, <laughs> but that, doesn't, that doesn't answer the overall arching question of why does God allow those things to even happen, right? Why does God allow that violence to be a part of the story in the first place? Which I think is probably a bigger part of your question as well, which I think is something interesting to mull over. Definitely. Are there any more questions? Yes, Matt. I know we're taking over time. I didn't understand in, um, in verse 3 what the foundations are. King Saul's uh, kingdom at that point. The foundations are being destroyed. That, that when I was reading through it, a lot of theologians specify that as being the thing. Um, what can the righteous do? It's like these 
The things that they built up, they wanted a king, they prayed for it, they said, make us this thing, and then all of a sudden now it's going to crumble and change into something else because of King Saul's wickedness and pride. Um, that's what it's kind of referring to. Uh, what can the righteous do when all the wicked are now in this great territory of this kingdom that is wicked? You know, the foundations of what they were hoping for is being destroyed. Now everything's wicked. What do we do? There's no place for us. We're being afflicted and poor and needy, all those things. See, I think that also is a timely application because in all the turmoil in our nation today, uh, many people of faith are saying the foundations are being destroyed. Yeah. So Christians are wondering, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? And I, th I think these psalms at a, as a whole are a good place for us to be. Like I said, at the very beginning, with, beginning with the overview, this is a book, <laughs> five books, um, <laughs> that you're supposed to study for the rest of your life. This is not like, a, oh, I know Psalms 59. I know how that applies to my life. No, 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 no. There's so many little details. I think it's important for us to read it as the original writers intended, like from David's perspective, how that was affecting him personally, apply that to ourselves, but then also take it at the face value as well. There's like two ways to read all these Psalms, um, and they're very applicable all the time. So I think, I think that's, that's what we need to focus on as Pastor John said, um, that like, yeah, we might also be feeling right now that the foundations are destroyed and what can we do as the righteous, you know, or striving for God's righteousness. So um, if you have any more questions, we can talk about it afterwards, but I'm gonna close our time now in prayer. God, thank you. Thank you that we had such open discussions tonight, um, diving into your word and being excited to learn. Um, I just pray that everyone who is in person uh, we'll travel home safely after this and that the conversations will continue and that for those listening to our podcast that they would also bring these conversations to others um, to continue this thought. Uh, thank you for this time, God. We pray for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, guys. Thank you for listening to this week's class. If you are between the ages of 18 to 40 and you're interested in joining us in person, Class is held every Friday night beginning at 6.30 p.m. at Columbus Baptist Church. You can find us online at cbcnj.com. That's cbcnj.com. Thanks again for joining us and we'll see you next week.